powerful story we all know well of a very courageous woman known as Harriet Tubman. Free as a slave in 1849, she would return to the South multiple, multiple times, freeing over 300 slaves in what was to later be known as the Underground Railroad. Incredible courage from an extremely, unbelievably courageous woman. We're going to see that again today as we look at Esther, as we continue our sermon series, Surrendered, as we are looking through multiple biblical characters throughout the scope of the Bible, and we look at how they were surrendered unto God in the midst of very trying times in their lives. Sometimes we see really ups, great ups and downs, hills and valleys of their life. We see at times uh, some that fall into great sin, but yet in the case of David, of course, he was a man after God's own heart, and he surrendered ultimately unto God even in the midst and after a great sin. But here we see today one of the great characters of Esther, and we see the story of an incredibly courageous woman. This is ultimately a story of God's providence and the faith of an individual. It's a story of a strong and courageous woman we know as Esther who made an incredibly brave decision of faith in the midst of great odds. She surrendered to God at a crossroad of crisis in her life, and that's really what we're talking about today. Surrendering to God in faith at the crossroad of a crisis in our life. She had confidence in God, undoubtedly, but as you can imagine, probably not great confidence in the outcome of the situation in the midst of it. So here's the thing. Well, we trust God in the same way when we come to a crossroad of a crisis in our life. So here's the question for us today. Take this, write this down. Will we trust God as Esther did? Will you trust God knowing that faith is built on God's providence, number one, and that faith is built in the commonplace? Will we trust God as Esther did? And will you trust God as she did knowing that faith is built on God's providence, number one, and that number two, faith is built in the commonplace. Let's kind of take a walk through the book of Esther now, and we're going to, if you want to turn to Esther chapter 4, that's where we're going to camp out on a few of those verses that are really key to this narrative here. But as we do, let's take a walk through this incredible story of Esther. The book of Esther opens with King Ahasuerus, that is the Hebrew transliteration of his Persian name. He was a Persian king. Uh, Persia was, was the empire of the day. They were ruling all, all, uh, over almost all of the known world at the time. Most of us know him by his Greek name, Xerxes, Xerxes. And so this was King Ahasuerus, the Hebrew name for the transliteration of his Persian name. He was a Persian king. And as we see the first couple of chapters of this book open, he dethroned his queen Vashti because she challenged his authority. So we see the rest of the book unfold as he is searching for a new queen. And Persia, of course, the powerful empire of the day, they have many known realms under their power. They've conquered many places. And so he sends out a call into all the other nations, all the puppet governments, all of the areas in which they've conquered and says, gather up for me the most beautiful women in all of the kingdom and bring them to me so that I may choose a new queen. Here's where Esther comes onto the scene. Esther is a beautiful woman. We know her to be far more than a beautiful woman skin deep, but her beauty runs further than skin deep. We see her to be a woman of righteousness and courage and integrity throughout this entire book. But no doubt she catches the eye of those that are going out, the emissaries of the king that are searching for the beautiful women of the day. She catches 
the eye of someone who is searching for these women throughout the kingdom. A little background on Esther. Her father passed away, and she was adopted by her elder cousin, and, and her elder cousin Mordecai, who plays prominently in this story, raises her as his own daughter. So we see the story continue to unfold as she is brought back to the king, and she's brought into the court of the king with a number of other women throughout the kingdom. They're given great beautification process. They're gone through a great regimen of beauty, and her beauty is so magnificent. She's the front runner, if you will, in the house that the one who's in charge of the beauty preparations for all of the women, he gives her double because I think she, he assumes that she's the front runner in the house anyway. So, as the story continues to unfold, she is, of course, welcomed into the king's court as the new queen. While this is going on, her adopted father, her elder cousin Mordecai, also holds a prominent, uh, a prominent position within the kingdom. He, like Esther, is a Jew. They're one of the many conquered kingdoms under the umbrella of the Persian Empire. They are Jews, un- unbeknownst to the king at this point. But Mordecai holds a very prominent position within the land. It says that he stands at the king's gate. And that's more than just a group of people that are gathering outside a gate, just you know, shooting dice or whatever. These are, if he's standing out there, as a, he's in a prominent position because it was a quasi-civil court at the time. He very likely was a great magistrate, maybe even one who had great decision-making in civil court matters. He was rising to prominence within the kingdom. Rising to prominence within the kingdom. Well, as he's standing there, Mordecai is standing there doing his duties at the king's gate. One day he overhears a coup d'etat being raised up by two of the king's officials. Two of his eunuchs, those guys that were in the king's court that were to do multiple things. One of which was to protect the king. Well, these guys were doing anything but they were planning a coup. Mordecai overhears this, and as we know, Queen Esther is now queen upon the throne. He sends a message through Queen Esther that this coup is being staged, and they are able to turn it back. Log that in your mind. It's extremely important later in the narrative. Well, at this same time, there is another man rising to prominence at the time. This man is an evil, wicked, ambitious man named Haman. He is rising to power, even more power than Mordecai is, and he is so drunk on his own power, and he's so impressed by himself, and he's so enraptured by his own self-importance that he believes that all the other officials need to bow down to him, including some of the princes of the land. But there's one who will not. Ding, ding, ding. It's Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. This had to be more, whatever it was, whatever sort of honor Haman was requesting of the other officials, had to be more than just kind of your run-of-the-mill giving honor to those in powerful positions. Undoubtedly, he was expected of him. He understood that. There must have been something that really began to, to dig at his mind, something that must have, 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 have piqued that, that sort of red flag, sent off red flag, sent off sirens in his mind that said, this is more than just a man that is wanting a general honor of his position. As a good Israelite, it must have been something that was beginning to approach. This man was wanting to be honored as one might only honor God. And he refused to do it, much like Daniel before him, much like Daniel rather uh, later in the Bible that we see. He said no for the wicked and drunk on his own ambition, Haman. This absolutely enraged him. He began to plot 
against Mordecai. And more than that, he began to plot against the people of Mordecai. He found out the background of Mordecai, that Mordecai was a Jew. He was an Israelite. And this is really important, too, because you see earlier in the, in the narrative that Haman himself was an Agagite. Yes, another ite. He was an Agagite, which was the royal name for Amalek. And for those of us who have read a little bit of Old Testament history, you see the people of Amalek continue to come to the surface again and again and again. They were one of these nations, one of these peoples that were always at war and enmity with the people of Israel. So we see that background as well. So what does he do? He begins to devise a plot against Mordecai. And so what does he do? He goes to the king, and he goes and he says, King, there's a people, and of course, as you can imagine, Haman only gives King Ahasuerus about half of the information, if even that. He goes to King Ahasuerus in his court, and he says, King, there's a people in your kingdom One of the peoples that we've conquered that are not obeying your laws, they're doing whatever they want, and this must be punished. This is a cancer upon our kingdom and our empire. This must be punished. This must be dealt with. King, I'll deal with it decisively. I will draft letters, and if you give your approval to these letters, I will go throughout all of the kingdom, and I will tell the people, the people that are loyal to the crown in Persia, I will tell them that if they find these people anywhere in the kingdom, that they can put them to death. And guess what, king? I'll sweeten the pot a little bit more. Whatever we get, whatever we get, whatever spoils of war, whatever plunder we receive, as we plunder these people, of course, he does not tell them who they are. He says, we will take the spoils of war and we will put them in your coffers, king. Mordecai knows what happens, what's happening, the, the plot that's forming, and he is, as you can imagine, greatly troubled. And he goes to Queen Esther. And he, he begins to think, what can we do? What can we do? And again, it dawns on him. Queen Esther, Queen Esther, God's providence is at work, Queen Esther is in the court. And so if you're in chapter 4, starting in verse 10, it says, Then Esther spoke to Hakath and, and, and sent him a command from Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. This is, again, Esther speaking to Mordecai, sending a message back to Mordecai through his servant and saying that she is extremely worried about this because the rule of the land is if you enter the presence of the king unannounced, then you'll be put to death unless he holds out that scepter to you and shows his favor. And furthermore, she says there in verse 11, yet I myself have been called... I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. On top of it all, she is wondering if she's lost favor with the king. She has not been granted his audience in 30 days. She's probably wondering, not only is this law in the books, but I've lost favor potentially with the king. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. He says... Esther, you've got to understand the gravity of the situation. This law is going out across all of the land, and you will not escape this either. 
Do not think that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. He knows and he trusts God's providence. He knows somehow, some way, he knows the promises of God dating all the way back to Abraham. He's saying that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I will make you a great nation. And he knows that one day the deliverer, one day the Messiah will come through this nation. So he doesn't know how. It looks really great. But he knows that God is still upon his throne. He says, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says, Esther, God is on his throne. God is providentially working in all of this. Who knows if you were not put in the king's palace for just this moment. Then we see this incredible reply of Esther, incredible reply of courage and trust and faith in God. She says, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all of Jews who are present in Shushan. That's another word for Susa, which we probably know better. And fast for me, neither eat or drink three nights or night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And in these famous words of incredible courage, she says, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So what do we see? We see as the story continues to unfold that she does have this incredible call of courage and she does it. She trusts in God. She calls out to Mordecai to have all the people of the land fast and pray for her that she might be uh, undergirded as she goes into the presence of the king and she does that. And the king does have favor on her and he in fact says, what is it, king, Queen Esther? What is it that you'd like to have up to half the kingdom I will give to you? And she says, well, don't yet have that For you at this moment, I will reveal that at a later time, but here's what I do want. I want to throw a banquet for Haman. Will you allow me to do that? The king, of course, grants her request, and she begins to throw this banquet, make preparations for this banquet of which she'll throw for Haman. Again, at this time, we see that Mordecai and Haman begin to clash again. Again, in the eyes of Haman, Mordecai slights Haman. He will not bow down. He will not worship Haman. He will not give him the honor that Haman believes is due unto him. And so he is absolutely incensed and enraged and troubled. And he goes home to his own house to his wife, Zeresh, and, and, and she, he pours out his heart, Haman does, to his wife and says, I'm so angry. I'm incensed. This man, Mordecai, will not bow down to me. And this becoming a great problem well his wife says those gallows that were erected those same gallows that were erected for these two men that that staged a coup against the king why don't you build another set of gallows like that and raise them 75 feet high that you might hang mordecai and that all in the land all in the kingdom all in the empire might see this is what happens to those that dishonor you and dishonor the king. As you can imagine, Haman loves this plan. He begins to erect these gallows, and we see the foreshadowing of these gallows throughout the remainder of the story. The king one night 
as these preparations are being made and as we see just the, as any great story, this one, of course, being the truth of Scripture, we see it building to this incredible climax that's coming. We see that Haman is making preparations for hanging Mordecai, for punishing Mordecai. We see that Esther is making preparations for this banquet in which she's going to use this, this time to powerfully reveal the, the, the plans of Haman and he will not be able to squirm and escape. As we see this happening, the king is sleepless. For some reason, we know it to be, of course, the providence of God that the king is sleepless and restless one night. And much like some of us, including myself, would do, if you're sleepless, you're restless, you get up and read. What does he read? He reads the chronicles of the kingdom. He reads some of the, the, the... the, the, the papers behind the scenes of what's happening, some of the classified documents, if you will, and he comes across, again, this coup that was staged by these two men, and he, for the first time he realizes, wait a minute, the person that revealed this coup, the person that thwarted this coup is Mordecai? Wait a minute, has something been done for him? Has he been honored in any way? The answer is no. So at that very moment in the sort of timing that only you might only find in a movie, Haman begins to storm in. He, he, he doesn't storm in, of course. He comes into the king's presence. He's announced and he comes into the king's presence. But he comes in and he, is, he has got his plan ready. He is going to bring to an apex of his plan that King Mordecai is dishonoring me, dishonoring the kingdom. I have a plan that we're going to punish Haman. As he begins to come into this time before he has a chance to speak, the king speaks to him. And he says, Haman, let me ask you a question. What do you think should be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman, as you can imagine, he begins to think that, oh, of course, the king is talking about me. I've done such a good job. He's blinded by his own ambition. He's like thinking, I've done such a good job. The king wants to honor me. So what does he say? Well, here's what you do, king. Take a robe that you've worn. It has special honor. It's not just a royal robe, it's one that you've worn and place it upon that man's back. Take a royal horse that you've ridden, king, and place that man upon the horse. Place a crown upon that man's head and parade that man throughout the city, casting great honor upon him. Thinking, of course, that he's speaking of Haman himself. Well, in a delicious twist, we know what happens next. The king says, great. Haman, wonderful idea. That's exactly what I want to do for Mordecai. I want to honor Mordecai that way. And in fact, Haman, I want you to be the one in charge of the preparations. You put the crown upon his head. You put the robe on his back. You sit him on the horse. And you lead him throughout the city. As we see this happen in this humiliating time, it must have been for just this power-hungry Haman. We see now that we come to this banquet, and as we do, the king says to Esther, she, he turns to Queen Esther, and he says, again, what do you want up to half of the kingdom? And what she wants to do, and she does, is she reveals the plot of Haman. He says that Haman, this evil and wicked man, has been plotting against Mordecai and my people to eradicate them. And the king, you can just see, you can almost see uh, throughout the course of this, you can just see his, 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 his anger just boiling and bubbling. It's just searing. And he goes and he gets up and excuses himself, probably trying to walk off the anger. And as he does, 
Haman throws himself at the feet of Esther, begging for his life, so much so that she even wore a couch in which she's reclining. He throws himself upon the couch right at the moment that the king enters again. And he says, enraged to Haman, he says, not only did you dare to do this, but now you are attacking my wife. And as you can see, And as we know, the story wraps up. Those very gallows intended for Mordecai are the very gallows in which we see Haman hang. And as they do, as we see that evil man go off the scene of this story, we see the courage of Esther once again. She once again enters the king's presence unannounced. He, of course, shows favor upon her. And she says, King, you remember the letters that were sent out. Those things are already enacted. They're going into place. There's people that are ready. They're gearing up for war. They're ready to attack my people on the given day that was outlined in those letters. Lord would, or, or King, would you send out a decree? Would you send out an official decree saying that, the, that my people, the Jewish people, can defend themselves on this day? He does this, and of course, more than the king's favor, the providence and the hand of God, they're able to defend this attack and turn it back, and it becomes a great time of rejoicing, all because of the providence of God and one very courageous woman who allows herself to be used as an instrument in the hand of God. Incredible story of faith and courage in the providence of God. You know, as we kind of walk back here to chapter 4, really the crux of this narrative, we see a couple things. First of all, we see that faith is built, faith is built on God's providence. Return with me, if you would, to verses 13 and 14. It says, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Remember, Esther says to Mordecai, I don't know if I can do this. I haven't been welcomed into the king's presence in 30 days, and it's a law of the land. If you enter and he doesn't show favor upon you, you'll be put to death. Mordecai, as much as I'd love to help, I don't know if I can do this. And Mordecai says, do not think in your heart you will escape the king's palace any more than the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. He's confident, and he's confident, and he reminds her of the providence of God. But you and your house, your father's house, will perish. He says this, yet you, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. The first thing that we see here about faith in the midst of a crisis is that faith is built not upon someone being able to sort of work up their own courage. Someone being able to to, to, to go to enough haunted houses or enough watch enough scary movies to sort of build up an immunity towards scary things. That's not it at all. Faith, trust in the midst of crisis, is built first upon God's providence. Here, here's the interesting thing about God's providence. Ever since the fall of mankind, we see that God has been redeeming mankind. It's been his plan and his promise ultimately to send the Savior, the Messiah, we know as Jesus Christ, the one who would redeem us from our sin. It has been God's plan ever since the fall of mankind to redeem his people. And ever since then, it has been the plan of the enemy, Satan, to thwart that sovereign plan of God. 
Maybe it's the time where we see in the, in the chronicles of the kings that Christ's lineage, Jesus Christ's lineage, had been murderously reduced to Joash alone. It had become that close, that close to being snuffed out. Herod, we know, early in the Gospels, puts to death the infants, trying to, to put to death this Messiah. He hears of the prophecy that this one has come, we know to be Jesus Christ. And so Herod begins to slaughter infants, trying to, trying to eradicate this one that would take his throne. Even as Jesus Christ is matured, he begins to live his adult life, we see that Satan came and tempted, trying to thwart and to undermine and discredit the ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that Satan, it says, entered Judas, one of his inner 12, trying one last ditch effort to thwart the plan of the gospel. But here's the thing we have to remind ourselves of. Faith is built upon knowledge that God is almighty and he is the everlasting one who will always do what he says he will do. That's where faith starts. It doesn't start again with us trying to just do some sort of mental trick or on ourselves and say, well, yeah, I'm, I have faith or I'm going to trust. It starts first with a knowledge and a reminder that God is almighty and he is the everlasting one who do, he will do whatever he says he will do. You see, our faith is built on that providence of God, knowing that he is in the business of carrying out his mission of redemption and protecting his people. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Listen to this, if you will, with me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So he is far higher than us. He is above us. He is beyond us. He gives power to the weak. The weak don't give power to themselves. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. You see, faith is not a matter of trying to, 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 to screw up our own courage to the hill. It is a matter of trusting the providence of God. It says it continues in verse 31, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Folks, we can draw strength. We can draw strength from the fact that God is focused, that God is focused not supremely on us, but supremely on his mission. And you say, well, how is that? That's weird. I, would, I think I would draw more faith and strength for if, if, I, if that were to say God is supremely focused on me. Folks, we draw greater strength from the fact that God is supremely focused on his mission of redemption. And therefore, he is the everlasting one who will always do what he says he will do. And we are caught up in that providence, that wake of his providence. He is continuing to do what he says he will do. And we know that our faith is built upon the rock. Isaiah 26.3 says this, you will keep him, that is the one, you will keep him, the one in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. Why? Because he trusts in you. It doesn't say that God will keep us in perfect peace if our mind is stayed upon the answer to our circumstances or if our mind is stayed and our mind is focused upon what we can do better. 
or if our mind is focused upon how we can improve our situation or of how we can be a better person. It says, you will keep him. As, 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 as Isaiah is, is, is giving confirmation and he is, he is affirming God's providence, he says, you will keep the one, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. Why? Because that one, he trusts in you. We trust in God. You know, we can have that victory over that rat race, that victory of faith over that rat race of life. You know, when we take the, we're just so caught up in the rat race of life, just are we advancing, are we progressing, are we doing this, are we doing that? We can have victory over that rat race of life if we trust in faith, one of Jesus' most prominent teachings, which is don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store it up in heaven. We can have faith and we can trust in him in some of, the, in some of those issues of life of, of what about our budget? When we run our budget into the ground because of entertainment and trying to seek the thrills that the world has to offer, when we have the greatest fulfillment in the midst of exactly what we're called to do, being on mission of the mission of redemption with God. When we are living on mission with him, we don't have to kind of find those thrills of the world. We are, we are living out exactly what God has called us to do, and it's thrill enough. And issue after issue after issue after issue in which we try to do it our own way, we try to find our own way through it, are we going to trust in God? And is that trust, that faith built upon, first and foremost, God's providence? You know, secondly, we see this. We give a couple of examples, just real-life examples of things that we might face. And what it reminds us of here is that we see by implication in verses 15 and 16 that faith is built in the commonplace. Faith is built in the commonplace. You see, Esther had faith in the midst of crisis because her faith was built first and foremost in the commonplace. We undoubtedly see that she was a woman of that inner beauty, of integrity and character. What was the first thing that she knew to do? What was the first thing that she knew to do in the midst of this crisis? She called Mordecai to ask the people, just as she would with her servants, to go and to fast and to pray. Faith is built in the commonplace. We build our faith for those crisis situations in our life by daily walking in faith. Esther 15 and 16 of chapter 4 say this, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Gather all the Jews who are present in Susa, fast for me, neither, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will, like, will likewise fast. So I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Again, folks, faith in crisis is built upon faith in the commonplace. When we look through scripture, when we say, what in the world is faith? What does it look like? How am I to be strengthened in my faith? There's some verses that come right to mind. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That word substance is the exact same word that is used to describe Jesus Christ, who is the very substance of God. It says in earlier in the book of Hebrews, the first chapter of Colossians 1, when it's, it's, it's linking Jesus Christ, he's saying this one, Jesus Christ, isn't some sort of a copy of God, but it is the exact substance of God. He is God, God, 
the Son. That same word here used to speak of faith gives us this idea that it is not just a hope that things are going to be okay, but it is a no-so, not based upon the circumstances or our life, but it is a knowledge that things are going to turn out right, even if they're not easy, not because of me, but because my faith is anchored in God. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And in fact, a little bit later in that chapter, in verse 6, it says, But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Not just faith, the moment of salvation, but the way we live our life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Is that because God is petty and he wants us to just you know, always be sort of waiting upon him? No, that's not it at all. When we have faith, we say to God in a very palpable way that I know that I am not powerful enough to handle the, 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 the commonplace issues of life, let alone the crises of life. And so, God, I know that you are the almighty one. And I know that you are the one who not only cares for the world, but cares for me. And I trust in you. It is the rubber meeting the road of faith to say, God, I'm going to trust you enough that I'm going to make decisions based upon what you call me to do. Each and every one of us face those forks in the road throughout our days. Those commonplace issues are where we can make a decision that honors God or we cannot. We can make a decision of integrity at work or we don't. We can make a decision of integrity at, at school or we don't. And on and on and on. And what we say is the world says this, my feelings say this, TV says this, my friends say this, but God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do it your way. I may not be able to see exactly how it's going to work out. I may not be able to see more than a couple steps down the road, and it's going to be difficult, but I am going to trust you and do it your way. So how do we build it up? Romans ten seventeen says this, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not only in the contextually there do we see that that ultimate faith for the word of God, that word of truth, that word of knowledge, which we know to be the gospel message at a time when a person comes to faith in Christ. But as we see also Colossians 2, 6, as you therefore have received Jesus Christ, so walk in him. At that moment that we come to saving faith, it's not a matter of us. It's a matter of God calling us and we surrender unto him. We surrender our life unto him in faith. And we say, yes, I'm turning the keys of my life over to you, God, because I, I believe that you could do far better with my life than I can do with it myself. I surrender, I repent, and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sort of faith is awakened by the word of God, that word of truth and the word of God. So how does that continue if we are to take the, the, the admonition of Colossians 2.6 that in the same way that we came to saving faith in Christ, we're so to walk in him. You know how to build up your faith? You build up your faith by spending time in the word of God. And when you walk through the word of God and you clearly see that there's some decision in your life where you know that the Holy Spirit speaking into your life and the word of God illuminating the word of God, you know that this way right here, if I take a right in the fork of the road, this way is going to be God's decision. Or I can make this decision here that's been the decision I've been making for the entirety of my life regardless of the consequences, the negative consequences that I've seen for the entirety of my life. The world also says to do this. My feelings say to do this. This is the thing that might seem easier. This is the thing that might be more habitual. That decision for God is going to be hard. Okay. 
your word says, this is the decision. This is the way. And God, I'm going to make that decision, and I am going to have faith in you. I'm going to trust in you. Faith in the commonplace builds faith for the crisis. We trust God to provide you know, for those bills that are rolling in. Many of people that sit here today, including myself, has the, have those testimonies of where you're just kind of piecing together and you're kind of uh, scraping together the last couple of things in the freezer to eat, and, and God miraculously provides. We trust God to provide when those bills uh, are rolling in. We trust God when everybody else is cutting corners at work. Everybody else is cutting corners. They're getting the jobs done quicker, but you know it's not right. You're going to have faith to not cut corners at work, yet God to still place you exactly where he wants you. Will you have faith in that matter, in the matter of your advancement at work? Faith to stay pure before marriage, and on and on and on and on. Insert in the blank whatever it is that may seem commonplace to you, a commonplace daily decision that you may have. Are you going to have faith in God's word and what he calls you to do, faith in the commonplace that one day strengthens your faith in the crisis. So the question is, again, just as we started, will we trust God just as Esther did? Will you trust God knowing that your faith is built upon, number one, first and foremost, primary in all things, the providence of God? It's not based upon us. It's based upon the providence of God. And will you know that daily you're making decisions that build faith in crisis because faith in the crisis is built on faith in the commonplace. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come, let us take this story of great courage of Esther and see that it is far more than that. She did at that moment of crisis and she did at that crossroad of faith, she made the decision that she was going to trust in you. Lord, we know that that faith was built upon the fact that she knew that you had providence in all things. She knew, and Mordecai knew, that you were a God who always does what you say you will do. You're almighty, all-powerful. You're steady. You are the rock. And Lord, at times, we might not know exactly what you're doing in our life. Things might not happen in our timing. But, Lord, we can trust that your way is always the best. So, God, will you build up and strengthen our faith? Faith that's built first upon knowing that you are on your throne and you are sovereign in all things. And then that faith that is built in the commonplace, the everyday work of deciding we are going to trust you. We are going to do things your way even when they look difficult. God, give us the strength that we need, even strengthen our faith when we are weak. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.